Hey, uh, we are going to be in Acts chapter 9 today, so if you'd like, you can go ahead and kind of pre-turn there. Um, I want to share with you a couple of things first, though. If you are unaware, this church is a part of an organization called the Southern Baptist Convention. Um, the Southern Baptist Convention is an a, a affiliation or association of churches that work together for a common goal, and one of those primary goals is to evangelize the world. In other words, to share the gospel to the world. And so uh, they do that in a m- multitude of ways. One of those is through training pastors, and so there's three of us in here that are going to, uh, that are students or have been students at the uh, Golden Gate Seminary, which or Gateway Seminary, which is one of our uh, pastor's schools here, and then Michael is a graduate of, graduate of Gateway Seminary. Um, but then there's two other ways, that is the North American Mission Board and the International Mission Board, otherwise known as NAM, N-A-M-B, or I, the IMB. And so NAM uh, supports this church financially. We are in a mission work of the North American Mission Board, and so they help us financially um, right now and are supporting us, but they also support church plants and church planting pastors all over North America. Um, But then the other thing is the International Mission Board is... uh, a supportive organization that trains and raises funds for international missionaries. So I actually have uh, many friends and relatives that are uh, connected to the International Mission Board, supported by the International Mission Board, trained by the International Mission Board. Um, and uh, that's, that's a huge thing because in other denominations and in other affiliations, most missionaries have to come home to receive their training. They have to come home to do some kind of a sales pitch to local churches. So if one of my family members or friends was coming home to raise support is what they typically call it, they'd have to go from church to church to church and try and convince you to give them money so that they could do their thing. Uh, the beautiful thing is that we as a church already give to the International Mission Board on a monthly basis and then um, in a kind of more extravagant way through the month of December um, every year. And so, uh, so as you give here at the church, there's a portion of your giving that goes to support international missions. And like I said, there's some of my family and some of my friends that are directly benefiting from that. Some of your support and giving goes to support North American missions, which our church directly benefits from. And so just so you know, that's something that we're a part of. One of the unique things about the International Mission Board is that they have a new leader, and his name is David Platt. David Platt is a relatively young man in terms of how they've done leadership in the International Mission Board in recent years, but he's... um, He's a well-published author and uh, really uh, kind of a uh, passionate visionary type. And he wrote this book called Radical. If you ever want to read a short but very inspiring book, you can see it's not... Not thick, all right? Some of your magazines are thicker than this. But short but very inspiring read. Uh, Pick up this book uh, called Radical. It will challenge you to the core. Uh, One of the things that he talks about as he started with the International Mission Board, uh, prior to that, he was a pastor of a large megachurch in the South. Um, But in coming on staff with that megachurch, he had the opportunity to travel to East Asia and to China to work with some missionaries 
ministry shortly before starting at that megachurch. So we're going to read a little bit of his experience. And this is what he says. And this is, uh, forgive me, this is jumping in the middle of the story so that we're not here for forever because I could read this whole book to you and it would be a great experience for all of us. But uh, we're going to say, I won't give you any spoilers. You're going to have to read it for yourself. All right? Everyone say deal. (laughs) So here we go. Um, It says that, uh, so he's in this prayer meeting with some believers in China. He says, as I looked around the room, I saw that everyone was now in tears. The struggles expressed by this brother and this sister were not isolated. They all looked at one another and said, we need to pray. Immediately, they went to their knees. With their faces on the ground, they began to cry out to God. Their prayers were marked less by grandiose theological language and more by heartfelt praise and pleading. Oh God, thank you for loving us. Oh God, we need you. Jesus, we give our lives to you and for you. Jesus, we trust in you. They audibly wept before God as one leader after another prayed. After about an hour, the room drew to a silence and they rose from the floor. Humbled by what I had just been a part of, I saw puddles of tears in a circle around the room. I want you to imagine that. So what's happening is they're all in the circle, bowed down face to the ground, and he sees this puddle of tears in a circle around the room. In the days since then, God has granted me many other opportunities to gather with believers in underground house churches in Asia. Men and women were risking everything to follow Christ. Men like John an Asian doctor who left his successful health clinic and now risks his life and the lives of his wife and two kids in order to provide impoverished villages with medical care while secretly training an entire network of house church leaders. Women like Lynn, who teaches on a university campus where it is illegal to preach the gospel. She meets in secret with college students to talk to them about the claims of Christ, though she could lose her livelihood for doing so. There's teenagers like Shan and Ling who have been sent out from house churches in their villages to undergo intensive study and preparation for taking the gospel to parts of Asia where there are no churches. Ling said to me, I have told my family that I will likely never come back home. I am going to hard places to make the gospel known and it is possible that I will lose my life in the process. Shan added, but our families understand. Our moms and our dads have been in prison for their faith. They have taught us that Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion. Then he goes to a different section. He says, a different scene. Three weeks after my third trip to the underground house churches in Asia, I began my first Sunday as the pastor of a church in America. The scene was much different. Dimly lit rooms were now replaced by an auditorium with theater-style lights. Instead of traveling for miles by foot or bike to gather to worship, we had arrived in millions of dollars worth of vehicles. Dressed in our fine clothes, we sat down in our cushioned chairs. To be honest, there was not much at stake. Many had come because this was their normal routine. Some had come simply to check out the new pastor, but none had come at risk of their lives. That afternoon, crowds filled the parking lot of our sprawling multi-million dollar church campus. Moms, dads, and their kids jumped on inflatable games. Plans were being discussed for using the adjacent open land to build state-of-the-art recreation fields and facilities to support more events like this. 
Please don't misunderstand this scene. It was filled with wonderful, well-meaning, Bible-believing Christians who wanted to welcome me and enjoy one another. People like you and people like me who simply desire community, who wanted to be involved in church and who believe God is important in their lives. But as a new pastor coming, uh, comparing the images around me that day with the pictures still fresh in my mind of the brothers and sisters on the other side of the world, I could not help but think that somewhere along the way, we had missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it with what is comfortable. We were settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. So, read this book. (laughs) Good book. Very good book. Um, We've been in the book of Acts for a few weeks now, and we've been following the lives of some of the apostles and the different teachers that have risen out of this movement of the new church that has given birth. One of the things that it's really important to remember as we jump in to today's message is where all of that comes from. And so, first and utmost is to remember that this all starts with Jesus, that Jesus initiated the church. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Jesus rose from the grave and Jesus commissioned prophetically the church by saying, as we uh, have talked about in Acts 1.8, that you will receive power My Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, or to the uttermost parts of the earth. And uh, so Jesus prophesies over his church. Jesus commissions or starts or launches his church with his death, resurrection, and then that commissioning word. And then Jesus empowers his church by his Holy Spirit. And so in Acts chapters 2, we see the Holy Spirit filling believers. We see the message of God and his gospel being preached to the nations there gathered in Jerusalem and thousands of people being saved. And then the Acts continues on with the story of the Holy Spirit's work in the lives of these radical new believers by working through uh, people like, uh, uh, men like Peter and John who preached the gospel and are jailed many times uh, for preaching the gospel are told many times, stop preaching the gospel, and they continue to do so at risk uh, of their lives and at risk of their livelihood, at risk of so many other things. Um, you move forward and you meet men like Barnabas, who sacrifices a lot, and we're going to read about him a little bit more today, that sacrificially gives of himself and his property and his possessions and his, uh, frankly, his, his net worth. Barnas, Barnabas sacrifices tremendously by giving sacrificially out of his pockets. And uh, we also meet a man uh, named Philip and a man named Stephen. And Philip, we talked about last week, Philip um, was baptizing and, uh, sorry, 
two weeks ago. We talked about Philip two weeks ago. He was baptizing an Ethiopian man and he was bringing the gospel to Samaria. So we got to see amazing things happening with Philip interacting with Simon. And then we see amazing things happening uh, with Philip interacting with the Ethiopian man and seeing the gospel change lives and lead people to baptism as Jesus saves them. Um, and then, then we look back and we also see this man, Stephen, who we haven't talked about for two and a half years or so, but Stephen was a young man that was uh, saved during the early parts of the church and then was commissioned to be a deacon. And Stephen, um, in his deaconship, served uh, widows who needed food. Um, in the course of that, he began to preach the gospel and ended up preaching the gospel in a synagogue that was not happy with him. Um, they, uh, as Stephen became more like Christ, if you read the story, it's amazing to see Stephen becoming brighter and lighter and more beautiful as we see the crowd around him becoming more devastatingly animalistic in their actions to where they're plugging their ears. Literally, you can read this passage. They plug their ears, they're shouting so that they can't hear him preaching, and they're running at him and trying to run him over. They eventually drag him out of... I mean, just picture this in your mind. They're plugging their ears and going, ah, blah, blah, while they're running at people. They're, uh, this is like descent into madness, and then they attack him and start murdering him with rocks, but they remember that their clothes are going to be bloodstained, so they take off their clothes to murder him with rocks so that they don't get blood on their clothes, and they leave their clothes at the feet of a man named Saul. And the Bible says that Saul was approving all of this. Last week we met Saul. Saul was on his way to Damascus. So just as the church had spread out of Jerusalem, so did the persecution of the church. And Saul is pursuing the church to Damascus, getting ready to, to try and persecute, try and hurt, try and put an end to the gospel preaching that's occurring in Syria, in Damascus. And on his way to Damascus, Saul is literally knocked off of his donkey by a blinding light, and Jesus himself speaks to him and says, Why are you persecuting me? In the course of what I won't repeat, um, you can listen to the message on, online. Uh, Saul is totally and completely transformed by Jesus. And there are men that take, like Ananias, that take radical risks to lead Saul to Christ, to heal him of his blindness, and to help him to walk in faith. Um, so today we get to take a look at Saul's transformation and what it looks like to be radical. And so as we read this, I want you to ask yourself, the question that we're posing today. Are you radical? So if you'd like, you can read along with me. It'll be up on the screen. You can also follow along in your Bibles. We'll be starting in Acts chapter 9, starting in the second half of verse 20. And it says, For some days he was with the disciples in the, at Damascus, and immediately, and this is Saul, and immediately he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc? in Jerusalem who uh, called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul 
increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who were living in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. While they were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Now, before we continue on, I I want you to, to... be aware of what we're reading. Uh, sometimes we read this like we're reading The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, okay? Uh, this is not The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. So I have that in my mind because my, wife's reading, my wife is reading through classics with my kids right now. So uh, this is not that. This is the truth. So I want you to imagine what's going on here. This is crazy. This is ridiculous. So this guy is being persecuted. So they stick him through a hole in the wall and lower him down in a bread basket. Can you imagine, like, gradually, like, hanging onto a rope with your feet in a little basket, lowering and, and then having to take off out of the city, headed who knows where, with no, like, supporting companions, traveling entirely by yourself from Damascus all the way to, we're going to see, to Jerusalem, which is not a short journey, uh, on foot at least. And, and so this is a real thing that happened. I really need you to understand that. This really happened. This is a record from history. Too often we read this like this is a fictional account. This guy, Saul, was really lowered through a wall because people were plotting to murder him. Verse 26 says that when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were, surprise, surprise, all afraid of him. Wait, wasn't this the guy that had all of the bloody clothes at his feet when Stephen was uh, murdered? For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to him how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and now how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And we'll get back to who the Hellenists are, but remember that. Verse 30, when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So... The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for wisdom as we try and understand it. We ask for your grace to help us believe it. And we ask for your um, your transforming Holy Spirit to work in us as we see uh, what you desire to accomplish in our hearts. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So, um, we are looking at how God makes us radical, how Jesus transforms our life. And the first thing that we need to realize is that people who are saved and transformed by Jesus are radical. That's, that's a state of being. For people who are transformed and saved by Jesus, they are radical. 
Um, there's uh, a few different ways that we're going to see this in the course of this passage, um, and we'll look at that in a moment. The first way that we see is that we're given a radical message. We're saved by this message, and then we preach this message to others. And so if you want to look, you can see in verse 20, it says that immediately he, Saul, proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is the Son of God. Now we have to understand why this is a radical message. Saul was a very devout Jew. And I want you to understand him in some ways as kind of like a militant Islamic person that might, uh, um, uh, that, that we would see as a terrorist, all right? Uh, that, that's kind of what Saul was, is he was a Jewish terrorist, that he uh, was attacking and pers- uh, pursuing Christians because he really and truly believed that the God that he was serving at that point in his life was calling him to murder Christians. And so Paul... Um, or Saul, sorry, Um, Saul is suddenly saying that Jesus is the Son of God. This is a statement in Jewish culture that has all kinds of messianic claims and is identifying Jesus as God himself, but also as the promised Messiah and the one to come. And for Saul, a devout Jewish man, to say that Jesus is the Son of God doesn't have the same repercussions in our culture because we say, yeah, Jesus is God's Son. Kind of like we watch on Family Guy and see the guy in the white robe and then Jesus is the kid of that guy in the white robe. It is nothing like that. We're talking about that this statement is a very transforming and potentially lethal statement for Paul to make. He's going from saying that God is God alone to saying that Jesus is God alone. That Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is God himself. He is the Son of God. He is the promised Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the only hope for our salvation. He is the one that we put all of our faith and trust in. For a Jewish man to say this is completely and totally radical. But for a Jewish man who is living as basically a terrorist... Uh, so convinced of his ideals and ideologies and his beliefs and what he was doing that he would pursue murder of people. This is a transformative, completely game-changing message. So uh, so Saul, um, being transformed by the gospel, becomes radical and he says that Jesus is the Son of God and everyone realizes it. We see the reaction and it's not like, oh, we're amazed. This is impressive. They're saying, this is super weird. The man who made havoc in Jerusalem and uh, of those who called upon Jesus' name, and he has come here for this purpose to bring these people bound before the chief priests for them to also be put to death. Saul is speaking on the same team as these people. And so the people around him are identifying. But Saul continues and he confounds the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. Now that's the beautiful thing, is that he's, he's not sitting there and saying, hey, if you guys want to believe, then you can believe. No, this is saying that Saul is going into the synagogues, he's busting open the scrolls and saying, look, 
Isaiah, Isaiah 53. This proves that Jesus is the Messiah. Look, look at the Psalms. Jesus is the Messiah. Look, look at Moses. Jesus is the Messiah. And he's proving to them that everything that they've waited for, everything that they've believed has always been pointing to Jesus. So Saul's not saying, hey, believe what you want to believe, but I kind of like Jesus. I'm kind of on team Jesus now. He's saying, Jesus is God and all that we have believed proves this. Okay? So, people like that get ostracized. People like that get pursued by, um, <laughs> by a hostile community. People like that have to get lowered out of cities in baskets because the message is offensive at first. The message that we cannot save ourselves is offensive. The message that Jesus had to die because we sinned against a holy and righteous God is offensive. But Paul is also faithful as we see and later on and in his letters and in so many other ways to say that Jesus alone can save them just like he saved a murderer like Saul. And so we have to remember this. This message is a radical message. Um, the question that I think that we have to ask is, uh, when we are sharing the gospel, are we sharing the radical message of Jesus? When we think that we're sharing the gospel, are we sharing the radical message of Jesus? And I, th I know for me personally, it hasn't always been that. I think each one of us has to ask that for ourselves. A lot of times, the message that we share um, is, is a, hey, um, how about, uh, you know, do you go to church? Oh, yeah, I go to church. Oh, great, we're probably both Christians. Well, hey, you know, that's kind of nice. I believe in heaven. Do you believe in heaven? Okay, cool. Yeah, same team. High five. See you later. Um, th that's, that's not the radical gospel message. The radical gospel, me gospel message addresses sin. The radical gospel message is clear on the ex execution of the Son of God necessary as a payment for our sins. The radical gospel message is clear on our desperate need for a Savior. The radical gospel message is that we can't save ourselves, but there is so much hope for us because Jesus can and does save the radical gospel message doesn't leave us in the pit of despair of our sin, but says you can be transformed by the light of the gospel. You can be saved. You can walk with Christ. You can be seen by God as holy and righteous and pure and loved. The radical gospel message is not, you go to church? Cool. I go to church too. Same team. The radical gospel message confronts sin and frees people to worship Jesus and know that they are transformed by his loving sacrifice. So, uh, we have a radical message. We also, uh, if we are transformed by Jesus, if we're saved by Jesus, we are made radical because we take radical risks. And the next thing that we see in this passage is Saul and other in individuals taking radical risks. So the first thing is that immediately he starts preaching the gospel. He's taking a radical risk by losing all of his friendships and relationships. Okay, so Saul didn't come alone to Damascus to drag people out of their houses and drag them back to Jerusalem to be executed. Saul came with his entourage, with his posse, with his crew, with his peeps. Okay? Saul came to Damascus not alone. 
Saul leaves Damascus alone. Right? Now, he does have disciples that help him. But, but Saul risks relationships. Saul risks his life too. Those people that he was working with are no longer potentially, unless they were saved too, they're no longer potentially his partners, but they are now his enemies, potentially the very people that are helping pursue him and trying to see him put to death so that it necessitates him escaping through the wall of Damascus. Um, I want you to think about this. Uh, Have you ever seen a relationship turn sideways on you because you were bold in preaching the gospel? Most of the time, I'm too chicken to get to that point. Most of the time, I'm too worried to lose that relationship. Um, And so I chicken out and I I go into, hey, same team, we're both uh, going to church kind of a thing instead of the true gospel that could transform my friends, could save them. Paul takes a radical risk in sharing the gospel with people that were, he was on the same team as adamantly against Jesus before. The next thing that we see is that um, he also, um, um, the disciples that are with him, the disciples that are saved by the grace of Jesus, um, they take radical risks in partnering with Saul in being the people that stay in Damascus while they lower Paul out. So if you think about it, Paul is escaping, but there's people that are staying behind to continue that gospel work. And that's a radical risk. Um, There's people, uh, brothers and sisters in China and other countries that do that. We have missionaries that go over to China. We have missionaries that go to South America. Missionaries that go to these places and share the gospel. But there are people that take radical risks by staying behind to preach the gospel and continue to disciple people at risk of their own life for a lifetime. And that's a radical risk. We also see a man named Barnabas taking a radical risk. Um, so what it says, in, if you want to look in verse 26, it says that when Paul had come to, or Saul had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join those disciples, but they were all afraid of them, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Um, but Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so... Um, I want you to imagine and to understand what's going on. Um, Barnabas is taking a huge risk. Um, Saul had gone to great lengths to pursue um, and persecute the church in Jerusalem. Okay? We see that in uh, the, what is the beginning of chapter 8, right, Michael? Um, and so Saul goes to great lengths to persecute the church. And in the ch- chapter 8, everybody leaves Jerusalem because of Saul's persecution in Jerusalem. So anybody that's left behind in Jerusalem at this point has experienced and been afraid of Saul for good reasons. They watched their brother Stephen be murdered by him and his associates, and then they buried Stephen shortly before they booked it out of town. All right? And so anyone that's still left in Jerusalem remembers what Saul did, I promise you. They remember. They buried people because of Saul. 
So I need you to understand what this was like. Barnabas took a radical risk. Let's put it in our current times. Let's say that there is a believer, um, a brother who is a soldier um, in, in the U.S. Army. Um, that he has done some time in Iraq, some time in a, done a tour in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other places like that. And he has faced radical Islamic terrorists at times in these countries, has seen his brothers and sisters in arms murdered by these individuals. And then at some point, he has an opportunity to meet this radical Islamic terrorist, and the man has been saved. By Jesus' grace, his life has been turned around. He's repented of his sin. He has been saved to the glory of God and is now ready to continue forward with the church. But the problem is that it's really hard to find other believers in your same camp. And so he has had to leave, like Saul did, everything behind to pursue um, other believers that he can be supported by and grow in. And so let's say that he meets this soldier. This soldier has buried friends on account of this man. This soldier has watched car bombs and roadside bombs and uh, other kinds of um, uh, things destroy his friends' lives, uh, both in murder and in lifelong agony and suffering and pain. What would it be like for that soldier to stand next to this former terrorist and say, no, really, guys, this guy's been saved by Jesus. Really, guys, th this guy's a Christian. I promise, I know this guy is saved now. This is what Barnabas is doing. Can we see that this is a radical risk? This isn't a guy that just said, yeah, I heard a couple messages. He seems like he's preaching the gospel. Yeah, I think that this guy is on our team. Seems like it. Nice guy. Barnabas is taking a calculated risk in partnering with a former terrorist. He's taking a very careful and calculated risk in partnering with Saul. And so we take radical risks. Um, the question that we need to ask ourselves is, by Jesus' grace and by his saving power, by the work of his Holy Spirit in our hearts, are we taking radical risks on people that we identify as undeserving of our risk? as not worth the risk, too dangerous, or too lazy, or too foolish, or too frustrating, whatever it is, are we taking radical risks on people? And then the question that we have to ask ourselves very first and foremost is like John, the apostle says, that we love Jesus because he first loved us. And if we don't have love, then we're not of God. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is Jesus first loved us. Are we loving people because Jesus first loved us? The love that God produces in our hearts is a radical love that takes radical risks on people that are undeserving of it because he took a radical risk on us when we were undeserving. So we move forward. Um, there's a radical message. We take radical risks because of the transformation that Jesus works in us. But we also see that... Um, there is radical reconciliation happening in this passage in, uh, in Acts chapter 9. I, wa I want you to realize, so 
we see, uh, and this is a little bit um, maybe uh, reading into the circumstance, but we have to put ourselves in Barnabas' shoes and ask what was happening. When it says in verse 27, Barnabas took Paul, he brought him to the apostles, he declared to them, he defended him basically, on how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how Damascus, he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went. So Paul, Saul, went in and out among them in Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. Now, I want you to understand this radical reconciliation that's happening first between Saul and Barnabas. So the Bible says that um, after Stephen was murdered, that um, godly men buried Stephen, and there was a great outcry in Jerusalem over this massive injustice of what had been done, right? Barnabas was there. Barnabas may have been the pallbearer that carried, one of the pallbearers that carried Stephen to his tomb. We don't know for sure. We don't, we don't know how he was involved. But Barnabas was there because we see him laying his tithes and his offering, or laying the sale of his property down at the apostles' feet. And so he's been in Jerusalem with the Jerusalem church. And he was there in Jerusalem more than likely when Stephen was executed. Barnabas was there more than likely when his friends, his brothers and sisters in Christ, were dragged out of their homes by Saul and his brute squad. Barnabas was there when he watched men like Saul, more than likely, execute, put to death other brothers and sisters in Christ in the similar manner that Stephen was stoned to death. Barnabas saw all of this go down, and what Barnabas does is he steps past this and reaches out in reconciliation. There's a passage in 2 Corinthians that we've been bouncing around it for weeks now, but I, that I think that Paul may have thought about himself when he was writing this. He says, Paul, Paul Saul, Paul, he writes this. He says later on in his life, he writes to the 2 Corinthians, and uh, writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, starting in verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also to your conscience. We are not condemning ourselves or commending ourselves uh, to you again, but giving you cause to, uh, get, to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what's in the heart. If we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So in other words, that the action that Barnabas was taking 
Jesus took to us first. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, making his appeal, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on the behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Paul proclaims this ministry of reconciliation, of moving from against God, moving from enemy of God to God, reconciling himself to him. And then he says, this is your ministry, is to reconcile people that are set apart, that are apart from me to me to each other. And so we see this thing happening that happened in Paul's life in Acts. And so Barnabas is a part of this ministry of reconciliation, this radical reconciliation. Now what's interesting is that after Barnabas does this for Saul, Saul does this in an attempt for others. Saul goes back to that Hellenistic synagogue that stoned Stephen to death. Look at this. He spoke, verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So Saul goes back to those Hellenists in that Hellenistic synagogue in Jerusalem. The guys that laid their coats potentially at his feet to stone Stephen to death and says, Jesus is God. They didn't respond well. Saul still chooses to bring that message of reconciliation to people that he had partnered with in murder three plus years ago. And so Saul comes and speaks with these guys, but their response is not, yes, we want to be reconciled. Praise God. Thank, thank God that he saved us. Their response is, let's kill him. And Saul is willing to take that risk anyways. Um, so, because of Jesus' work in our lives, because of Jesus' transforming power in us through the Holy Spirit, we become witnesses that are radical. That's just what happens in our hearts. That's what happens in our lives. God works this transforming thing in our lives that makes us this. Um, so today is Father's Day. So I have a word to you fathers to conclude this uh, that I want you to think about. But really, this is for everybody. So some of us are fathers in this room, and this is for us for sure. But it is really for everybody. Um, there's another great book that I want to share with you that's uh, called Rev Revolutionary Parenting. Um, it's uh, kind of an offshoot of a book that George Barna wrote called Revolution. But uh, Revolutionary Parenting is specifically about parents. Again, look, it's very short, um, but it's also very good. And the letters are big. So it's a quick read. It's an easy read, but it's a really good read that is, is really convicting. And there's a couple of things that Barnett... Uh, observes about our culture that I want to read to you, and then uh, then we're going to look at um, uh, his kind of summation or response. 
So my kids were playing with the book during the service, and my marks fell out. <laughs> okay, so uh, the, the section, um, this is talking about our culture, and he says, if we were to gauge how well we're doing in this regard, um, in terms of faith in American uh, culture, our outcomes might startle you. Consider the findings from a recent survey that we, Barna, conducted among nationally representative sample of children between the ages of 8 and 12. Most of our children... Number one, are biblically illiterate, which will become clear as you read on. Their ignorance of the Bible teachings corresponds to the fact that only about one-third of our adolescents fully believe that the Bible is accurate in all of the principles it teaches. Now, these are kids in church. This isn't just kids in general, kids in church. Few, so one-third of kids in church between 8 and 12 actually believe that the Bible is accurate. Few of our children are motivated to share their faith in Christ with others. Less than one out of every five, 19%, contend that they have a responsibility to share the gospel, to evangelize their peers. Not even half of our young people, 46%, state that their religious faith is important in their lives. Few of our children take Satan seriously. Only about one-fourth of them complete, uh, uh, completely dismiss the idea that Satan is symbolic, instead believing that the devil is real. So three-quarters of our children believe that Satan is just a symbolic, figurative kind of a thing. Salvation baffles most of our young ones. Only two out of every ten reject the idea that a good people can earn their way into heaven. Only three out of every ten dismiss the belief that everyone experiences the same post-death outcome regardless of their beliefs. In fact, only two out of every ten adolescents, 21%, strongly disagree with the statement that people can not know for sure what will happen to them after they die. Most of our kids are willing to entertain the idea that Jesus Christ sinned while he lived on earth. Only 44% outright dismiss the idea that Jesus sinned. The majority live for things other than loving God with all their hearts, minds, strength, and souls. Specifically, only four out of ten live with that purpose in mind. Three out of four young people reject the notion that there's no such thing as God. However, not only is that lower than expected based on adult surveys, but we found that fewer young people today, only 58%, believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who still rules his creation. That result is lower than we have seen in the last quarter century of survey work. A similar percentage, about 6 out of every 10, believes that God originally created the universe. Only one-third of America's adolescents ardently contend that Jesus Christ returned to physical life after his crucifixion and death on the cross. We're talking about 1 Corinthians 15, that Christians should be pitied most of all if Jesus hasn't raised from the grave. But the reality is that only one-third of America's adolescents believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus. By their own admission, our children are confused theologically based on their reaction to statements like, it doesn't matter what religious faith I follow because they all teach similar lessons, it's clear that they do not know what they think about competing worldviews and belief systems. So, Barna goes on to tie all of this to whether or not 
the parents of these children. So the small percentages of kids from age 8 to 12 that, that don't fall into that statistic category can be directly correlated to their parents' faith and what it looks like. One of the things that he repeats over and over and over in this book, not just by studies and numbers, by anecdotal statements from the kids he's interviewed, is that the parents' faith and how they display their faith before their children is transformative in what they believe. And the reality is that most of those kids that are walking away from Jesus, walking away from God, walking away from the church, walking away from their faith, don't believe that their parents actually believe it. (laughs) They think that their parents are just going to church. And this is what it says, he says later, he says, um, sorry, uh, again, (laughs) uh, I love my children, but they changed my bookmarks here, and so uh, make sure I... uh, yeah, here we go. Uh, one of the idiosyncrasies of these families is that of these families that have faithful children is they t- they tend to delve into faith matters as a family unit. While there are ample instances of family members engaging in spiritual activities apart from other family members, for example, Sunday school classes, small group involvement, attending Christian events, the glue that holds it all together consists of two things: family conversations that bring biblical views into their shared lives and efforts to regularly engage in faith activities, Bible study, worship, and prayer that model the integration of faith into their lives. This practice is certainly an aberration even among families in which one or both parents are both born-again Christians. Nationwide, fewer than one out of every ten born-again families read the Bible together during a typical week or pray during a typical week, excluding mealtimes. Discussing faith principles as a normal part of decision-making is highly unusual even in Christian America. But many of the revolutionary parents we interviewed underscored how crucial these family faith experiences were to raising a godly child. If they, her children, did not get the experience of thinking about and talking about their faith at home, quotes one lady, they would have not have had the experience, stated one of the mothers. When I grew up, We never talked about spiritual matters. So when I went to school or to work, I was intimidated by the subject. My husband and I made sure that we would not, this would not be the case with our children. So we prayed out loud with them all the time. We read the Bible together. When we disciplined kids, we'd often go and look up a verse to show that our kids were not random or weird, but just following the heart of the Lord. And all of that openness made our, uh, about our faith made them more comfortable discussing their faith and even thinking about how to make their faith a central part of their, who they are and how they live. I'm so proud of them for the commitment and the way they live their life today. The adult children we interviewed realized that their parents were different when it came to faith and their religious expectations for them when they were quite unlike those experienced by their friends. However, three out of every four of those children said they rarely, if ever, resented the pervasive spiritual influence and the substantial religious activity expected of them. So here's one of the reasons that we hear is, I don't want to force my kids to believe. I don't want to force them to go to church. And uh, that we're, saying, we're saying that these, these kids that they interviewed that were radical spiritual giants, 
were saying that they never resented their parents bringing them to church, engaging them in biblical conversation, praying with them, worshiping with them. A similar three-quarters of the parents expressed belief that such direct involvement in the spiritual lives of their kids and holding them to high standards of participation was crucial to their spiritual development. In fact, the adult children stated that it was the extensive time spent in studying the Bible as a family that made the greatest difference in their emergence as dedicated followers of Christ and advocates of Scripture. So the reality that we need to realize, parents, is that... If we are committed in talking about our faith with our children, if we are committed in being open about our faith, if we are committed in living our faith out in front of our children, then there will be a transforming correlation because they believe that you believe. And hey, teenagers, you're not off the hook. Your friends won't come to church with you. Your friends won't receive faith in Jesus because they don't believe that you really believe. That's the hard, cold truth. My friends were not coming to faith in Christ when I was a teenager because I did not live like I believed in Jesus when I was a teenager. And so I'd invite my friends to come to church. I'd invite them. We'd talk about God. But they did not believe that I really believed what I said I believed. If Jesus has not caused a radical faith in your life, then the world around you believes you are what they call a poser. If you want your kids to have a powerful spiritual giant of a faith, then they have to believe that you're not a poser. You can't be the dad that's standing in worship that will not participate, that will not engage, that will not uh, show their children that they really and truly believe that Jesus is worthy of all their worship. You cannot be the father that will not read the biblical text before their children because you believe what it says. You cannot be the father that will not pray with your kids because then it's communicating that you don't actually actually believe that Jesus listens to you when you pray. And the kids say, why would I pray? My dad doesn't even think Jesus is listening. The reality is this. When we read the book Radical, when we go back to that opening statement, this is what those kids, Ling and Shan, said. I've told my family that I will never come back home. I'm going to hard places to make the gospel known, and it is possible that I will lose my life in the process. Shan added, but our families understand our moms and our dads have been in prison for their faith. They have taught us that Jesus is worthy of all of our devotion. You have to show a watching world that he is worthy of all your devotion. But here's the, the, here's the grace for us this morning. We can pile on all of the guilt of how we've not lived our lives the way we should have. But the grace for us this morning is that if we will allow the Holy Spirit, this is a transformation that He works. Let's go back to Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus, speaking over His church, says, not... If you do all of these things, then I guess I'll let you be my witnesses. But Jesus says this very clearly. You will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. 
So this is the beautiful thing of the gospel. This is the beautiful thing of the radical message we've been given, is that Jesus, by his grace, saves us. He saves us from our life of sin, from our life of separation, into a family, and commissions us to have a message to carry on as witnesses, and then he empowers us to carry that, mis- that, that message, that witness to others. The thing is, a lot of times we say, ah, I really don't want Jesus to change me that much because it's going to get weird. (laughs) And (laughs) let's just say this morning, folks, let's let's just get weird for Jesus today, okay? Um, Let's allow the gospel to transform our hearts and our lives. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. Let's allow Jesus to make us the witnesses that he promises us we will be. Let's get... Let's get radical. Let's get weird for Jesus. Dads, have hope that even if you've missed an opportunity, Jesus can still transform by the power of his Holy Spirit. Moms, have hope that you're not alone and that the Holy Spirit can work in the lives of your children, grandchildren, the the descendants that will follow you. Teenagers, have hope that your life isn't over yet. You still have an opportunity to be radically transformed in a way that your friends will say, actually, I, I think he believes this. I think this is real. I, 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 think, I think that he's not just that poser that goes to church. Jesus can change us. Jesus can save us. And I think the, the final thing we have to ask ourselves is if we don't see that radical transformation and we don't even experience the Holy Spirit's desire in our life to change us that maybe we struggle because we're resisting sometimes, then maybe we need to ask ourselves, have we been radically transformed by the gospel? Has Jesus really saved us? Have we experienced the grace of God in our lives. Let me pray for you, and we're going to sing some closing songs. I want to encourage you to respond to God and to ask Him to change your hearts and your lives. Respond to His Holy Spirit by obeying and following after Him. Respond to Him by trusting that He can make you radical for His name's sake. He can make you uh, ready to bring a radical message, take radical risks, and bring radical reconciliation to undeserving people like us. Father, we thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you do. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit that continues to accomplish these things in our hearts and our lives. Help us to understand what you're calling us to and how you would have us to live by your power, by your Spirit. We know that we're incapable of it without you. And so we just ask that you would continue to empower us to be radical to, as we were just saying, to be weird for you. We love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.